morning and welcome to Rising. Glad to be joined again by Brianna Joy Gray, who is back today. Hello, Brianna. Hello, Robbie. It's good to be back. You uh, had a little too much Halloween candy? I had a little too much Halloween, but I was under the weather. <laughs> I succumbed to just a cold, but I'm, I'm back and ready to go. Well, we're glad to have you back. What are we talking about today? Well, Robbie, House Democrats may soon find themselves caught in a trap of their own making. For reporting in The Hill, Speaker Mike Johnson's inclusion of IRS cuts into his Israel spending bill will force the bulk of Democrats into the no-win scenario of sacrificing one of their stated priorities for another. Moreover, 15 Democrats already broke with their party last week in declining to endorse a non-binding resolution proclaiming U.S. support for Tel Aviv, setting up a potential showdown between the party's progressive and establishment wings when it comes to Johnson's $4.3 billion war spending bill. Now, the White House has confirmed that even should the bill make it past the House and Senate, President Biden plans to veto it before it becomes law. A spokesperson for the president derided the bill as inserting partisanship into support for Israel. Meanwhile, Representative Thomas Massey, who joined those 15 Democrats in declining to support the House's Israel resolution, received a call out from the American Israel Public Affairs Committee over his no vote. That's AIPAC. Massey responded in kind, writing on Twitter, quote, AIPAC always gets mad when I put America first. I won't be voting for their 14-plus billion dollar shakedown of American taxpayers either. Let them know what you think by replying to their post. They are intentionally misrepresenting my intent and the resolution I voted against. So, what, what do you make of this massy uh, kind of squad uh, coalition that formed here against this resolution? They both got very right. similar sides of, uh, types of criticism. They were both accused of loving Hamas and, you know, wanting to support terrorism, et cetera, et cetera. They obviously both stated that their objection to the bill was the progressives leaned into the one-sidedness of it, not condemning the disproportionate killings of all of these now thousands and thousands of Palestinian civilians, um, and also the characterization of some campus members who are engaging in free speech that is not articulating a preference or support of Hamas being looped into this kind of a bill. Um, what, 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 is these, what do you make of these unlikely bedfellows? I mean, there, there, there is a path for right and left um, coalition on this issue that revolves specifically around um, rejecting funding for another a foreign country's military object, uh, objectives or defense priorities. That is something we can agree on. There's a lot of—now, there's a lot of distractions from that point, obviously, because there's a lot of disagreement, as comes—as as is very clear when you and I discuss this. But I, I, I'm glad to see Thomas Massey standing up for principle, like Ron Paul before him. Uh, you know, Massey is someone, yes, who has this America—you know, kind of liber libertarian-esque, America-first um, viewpoint that we should not be funding foreign wars or foreign governments. Um, it's gotten him in trouble in the past. I think it actually—he's he, annoyed Trump with it in the past. I think Trump mm -hmm. fielded, like, a primary candidate against him. Um, he destroyed that candidate. He's very popular in his district. Um, the, the people of, of Kentucky are of a kind of libertarian, Republican mind about this stuff. So um, I, I don't think he has— like anything to fear from APAC, but it, it shows that um Nothing to fear. I mean, APAC responded to the tweet, a uh, Massey tweet we read about him putting America mm -hmm. first, saying, charges of dual loyalty. This is from the APAC's Twitter page. Yeah, they've accused him of this Ch in the past. Charges of dual loyalty, they say, are anti-Semitic and insult millions of patriotic Americans who stand by Israel. The U.S. is stronger when Israel is secure. No misrepresentation. Your vote says it all. No to stating with Israel. No to condemning Hamas. No to helping mm -hmm. Israel win this war. 
Um, and in response, Thomas Massey said this baseless smear is meant to intimidate me into voting into sending 14 plus billion dollars of your money to a foreign country. Right. Please let AIPAC know we are broke and these tactics, tactics don't right. work. Of but our they, money. They do, but they do work, don't they? Well, and, and I, I mean, I have all sorts of confidence that, in his, especially in his district and among Republicans, um, Massey's side of this argument is more popular. Again, they're, they're asking—I'm sorry, they're asking for a handout. They're asking for a, for a bailout they don't need. They're asking for funding of their defense. Again, what about America? This is what conservative voters want. And it's not lack of sympathy for what, it, what has happened in the Israeli-Palestinian— Conflict. That's where there are differences with the left. It's not a. It's it's not even a te like telling Israel what to do or how it should conduct this war. It's about we're not. We should not be on the hook for it. We have priorities here. Like it's it's other people's money. I mean, the, like the federal government, all of their money is our money. So they can't just. So it's it's like we're being asked to be very generous for other countries and for what? And at the end of the day, how does this make America better off? I mean, we're talking about. Uh, it, just think about it from a strategic. Standpoint from it, you know, set aside the humanitarian. We're talking to a, a humanitarian expert today on what's going on in the conflict. Just talk about it from what is, you know, what is realistically best for America's national security, um, and is it broader conflict? Is it indiscriminate bombings that um, that destroy families, that leave people, turn people into orphans? Ten years from now. There's going to be more radicalism and more extremism on the on the terrorist side, on the Islamic side, because of what they're going through now. Is is that going to help us? Is that good for us if we paid for it? These yeah. are valid questions, and and you're not you're not anti-Semitic, you're not even anti-Israel to be asking them because it's not good for Israel either. Yeah, it's hard to read um, Osama bin Laden's manifesto justifying why he uh, blew up the twin towers. Uh, and hearing him say it's part, it's in his view justified because of America's treatment of uh, Palestinians and endorsement of Israel's treatment of Palestinians, and not think that this conflict is ultimately going to make us all safer, safer, including Americans, including American Jews, and including Jews living around the world. I want to ask you though, why do you think Thomas Massey seems to be the only conservative among this lot uh, willing to take this stand against this funding? Others in the no column included Jamal Bowman, Cory Bush, Andre Carson, Al Green, Summer Lee, AOC. Ilhan Omar, Dile Ramirez, and Rashida Tlaib. There were six others who voted present, uh, all at first glance looking like the kind of the same progressive that you would expect. Uh, Mila Jayapal is over there, Ayanna Presley. Yeah. Uh, if you're right, and I think that you are, about there being an enormous appetite for a kind of an America first um, financial policy, spending policy on the right side of the aisle. Why is Massey alone willing to take this stand? Well, I hope in time he won't be alone. Uh, Representative Chip Roy of Texas, um, another strong America first uh, Republican, has said he's only going to support the funding if it's, you know, offset. He wants the offset with the IRS, as we read in the show. Again, I, I still—I don't want to make this—support this funding, and neither does Massey under any circumstance. But I wonder if someone who's in that kind of mindset could be won over to the Massey position. And I, I suspect if they talk to the people in their districts, talk to Republican 
voters, talk to Republican primary voters, see how they feel about this issue. You're going to find that they have a lot of support for for Israel as the victims of a terrorist attack, and 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 they're going to think there's a lot of legitimacy, I suspect, in what Israel is doing. They are not going to think that it makes America better to to have Israel's defense prioritized over our own. Yeah, it, that tax trade is an interesting one. There was a lot of debate about this, obviously, because historically, uh, the, in the last 10 years or so, since Republicans cut IRS funding, the IRS has disproportionately gone after poorer earners. The most uh, audited city in the country is a city in Mississippi, which is deeply poor. Yeah, I was one looking at it yesterday, because Jessica and I were talking about it. The lowest income bracket is audited at a rate five times higher than any other. And of course, statistically, it is also true that when the IRS has been funded at higher levels historically, it has gone after richer earners as, as compared to poor owners. So the whole point of this was you need more resources to go after the big dogs, and you also get more return for your buck if you go after the millionaires and billionaires that are evading their taxes and have all the resources to do so. When the IRS is underfunded, the resources they have mean that they do these kind of pro forma audits, which are very easy to do on very low-income people. So are Republicans now advocating for a return to form where poorer people get audited disproportionately than richer people? And is this Republicans kind of saying American first and populism, but ultimately advocating for a policy that's going to, that's going to help the millionaires and billionaires in Congress as opposed to the average I don't American? think they want the low-income people taxed harder or tax-policed more. And in fact, if the IRS got more money, I, I guess I'm skeptical that they would put that's all already... of it into going after the... Yeah, well, they would reverse course. We've already seen it started to happen. So there was reporting that that exactly no, no. I what think people, they'll just. I think they'll police. I think even with more funds, they'll just police the low income people more. They'll that do more of what works. That hasn't been happening. What I'm saying is that. This is, that has not been happening. So we're seeing a return to what it was like before the IRS funds were cut, where more very wealthy people were audited proportionally to we're seeing poor that people. Right yeah. now. It's already been it's already been going into effect. I support a simpling a simplification of the tax code so that it's easy to make everyone pay what they what they ought to pay because the more complicated it is, the easier it will always be for wealthy people to to avoid or offshore or whatever. I think that's true, but I don't think the people that are advocating to cut the IRS are going to be the ones that are also advocating for fewer ways for them to uh, avoid paying well, their taxes. I don't want to police low-income people. I don't want to. I don't want to police anyone. I want taxes to be as low as possible. Yeah, across oh, well, the board. Uh, I, I certainly agree with that for low-income and working people, but not for the elites among us who control our tax code. All right, stick around. We'll have more rising for you right after this. Even CNN host Wolf Blitzer was stunned as an Israeli Defense Force spokesperson confirmed that the IDF was responsible for bombing the densely populated Jabalia refugee camp near Gaza City. Here's Blitzer's exchange with IDF's Lieutenant Colonel Richard Hecht. But you know that there are a lot of refugees, a lot of innocent civilians, men, women and children in that refugee camp as well, right? This is the tragedy of war, Wolf. I mean, we, as you know, we've been saying for days, Move south. Civilians are not involved with Hamas. Please move south. Yeah, I'm just uh, trying to get a little we, bit more information. Uh, you knew there were civilians there. You knew there were refugees, all sorts of refugees. But you decided to still drop a bomb on that refugee camp attempting to kill the Hamas commander. By the way, was he killed? I can't confirm yet. I'll, there'll be more uh, updated. He, yes, we know that he was killed. 
As IDF's HECT verified, the strike launched yesterday was intended to kill a Hamas leader, Ibrahim Biari, as well as other militants. And while it did, in fact, hit its target, the deadly blast killed an estimated 50 Palestinians, perhaps more. Obviously, all these statistics have yet to be totally verified, but you can see evidence of the widespread destruction. Conservative host Ben Shapiro defended the IDF's bombing of the largest refugee camp in Gaza, taking to X, saying uh, yesterday, destroying a Hamas command center after warning all civilians in the area to get out is correct. Hamas hides behind civilians. Should this grant them immunity? If so, you have created a massive incentive for them to hide behind civilians. Many more civilians will die over time. Here to discuss the Israel-Hamas war is Sarah Yeager, the Washington director at Human Rights Watch. <clears throat> Excuse me, Sarah, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. Sarah, as someone who's coming from a humanitarian perspective, I wondered if you could weigh in on what is considered to be uh, self-defense, as it's been described repeatedly, Israel having the right to uh, self-defense, and what constrains that right in terms of rules of war and respect for humanitarian interests like civilian deaths? Sure. It's a great question. And those videos are just gut-wrenching, <clears throat> excuse me, of civilians um, dealing with the aftermath of this strike in the in the refugee camp. So um, it, it, states do have a right to self-defense. Uh, they also have to balance that with international humanitarian law. Those are the laws of war that we keep hearing about. And the laws of war say that um, you can defend yourself, you can use airstrikes, you can use ground raids, all of the things that we see IDF doing. However, um, you cannot harm civilians um, in a disproportionate manner to the military target. States have a proactive, positive responsibility to protect civilians by all means feasible. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very interesting. I mean, that, that becomes an argument over what is disproportionate. Uh, I know that Netanyahu and other um, Israeli government officials, I, we've we've heard reporting in their private conversations with American officials, have have brought up um, World War II, have pointed out that the U.S. Um, you know dropped nuclear weapons on on two Japanese cities, and even before that, firebombed Tokyo, killed you know thousands and thousands and thousands of innocent people, as well as legitimate military targets. Targets that you know Germany was leveled and tons of uh, citizens, civilians died during during that war. Um, I, I mean, have the standards evolved since then? And you know, what are how are we? Is that going to be persuasive? And is this a different situation, or was maybe that anti-humanitarian as well? Sure. So um, World War II is not what we're talking about here. The the norms, the customs, the um, rules by which states need to abide have evolved since then. So nobody is talking about comparing this to the firebombing of Tokyo and Dresden, uh, nor the dropping of a nuclear bomb. Current uh, international law says that states must protect civilians by all means feasible. They can still go after their military targets, um, but they need to distinguish between civilians and combatants. And they need to make sure that when they are going after a military target, that the civilian harm that they intend to cause or that they know that they are going to cause is proportionate to the value of that target. And you know what you're kind of getting at in that question is that it's all subjective. There is no equation that is written out on any piece of paper that the international community agrees to, X plus Y equals Z. This is all very subjective.
Can you tell us a little bit more about what this refugee camp was? We know that it's the largest refugee camp, at least it was the largest refugee camp in Gaza. Who populated that camp? And is it right to describe it less as uh, a kind of a temporary dwelling, the way some people might be imagining it in their head, as opposed to a city that's been built up over the years because these refugees, as I understand it, had been there since the many of them since the 1948 Nakba? Right. So you can see in those pictures that these are not tents. You know, these are buildings uh, that have been built up over time. It was a densely populated area with civilians. Um, it sounds like there may have been tunnels underneath in which Hamas uh, was hiding out. It's all a little bit unclear at this moment. Um, Human Rights Watch is going to be doing investigations into exactly who was there, um, what types of weapons were used. All of these things make a big difference in determining whether this was a legitimate strike or not. The size of the bomb, was it a precise strike or were they using indiscriminate weapons? All of this remains to be seen at the moment. Can you address the argument that uh, Ben Shapiro made that I read off at the start of the segment? He, he, him, he's saying that if you allow Hamas or terrorist organization to get away with hiding among a civilian a population that you consciously choose not to target them because the risk to civilians is too great, then they have a, a future incentive to hide in hospitals or churches or refugee camps, um, whereas I think what he's arguing—I'm I'm just putting out his argument for you to, you know, respond to—that if you if you don't treat that situation any differently and you still target the terrorists, then maybe they get the message that there's no point to hiding among civilians because that's not going to stop the people who are coming after us. This is the really complicated equation, as I was saying, of what warring parties need to figure out. So, um, yes, the IDF um, is clearly not letting Hamas get away with that. They are targeting them uh, where they are. But uh, is Israel also needs to consider that they have obligations under under the laws of war and that also there you know there is tremendous blowback um legal or not when it comes to harming civilians the anger and resentment around the world is really growing um and of course you see you know the, whether or not these strikes were violations of the laws of war we don't know yet but the outcome is tremendous civilian suffering um and you know israel talks about giving warnings to civilians that's important that is an obligation under the laws but when civilians <clears throat> excuse me don't have anywhere to go um, that makes it a very different calculus. Can you unpack that further? Because I, I have seen a lot of people wondering why, given that this was a location in northern Gaza, some of the locations that Israel has bombed have been in southern Gaza where they told people to flee. This is not one of them. Why people might have chosen not to leave or might not have been able to leave. And I was wondering specifically whether it might have anything to do with the proximity of this refugee camp to the northern gate to Israel, where I know uh, people were—which I know people were using as some of the only limited access to more complicated health care, like cancer treatment, at least before this crisis broke out. There are so many reasons that civilians would stay in place. Um, one of them is that perhaps their families can't move. They might be injured. They might have health concerns. They might be disabled. Um, we just looked into a lot of cases of disabled people and families in Gaza who cannot go anywhere, um, even if they know that the bombs are coming. Um, people need food and water. They, uh, you know, they, they don't know what they're going to get when they leave. 
They also um, are making really difficult decisions about leaving family members behind, not knowing if they're ever going to see them again. And your point um, about being close to where they might be able to get more complicated health care, um, where they might be able to get more food and water and things that they need for their children, you know, that that means that they're not necessarily going to want to leave to the South. Um, I wondered if you could address the uh, the you know drone bombing aspect of this. You know, modern warfare conducted this way has so uh, dra dramatically reduced um, the the risk for the you know for the people using doing engaged in the bombing, right? While also you know because those people are they're just pressing a button remotely. Um, whereas if you have if you have ground forces, you have more theoretically at least ability to use discretion like if they were you know if a ground force was was moving through this refugee camp looking for the terrorists they you know that's not they're not dropping a bomb on the whole thing but at the same time there's more risk that they get into a firefight or theoretically there's risk that they shoot the wrong people or you know, in, I think in the history of ground warfare there's like more casualties overall right but uh, but the ease at which pressing the button exists and, and the, the minimization of risk on one side how does that affect um, humanitarian concerns for how war should be conducted? This is a great question. And we've been, you know, dealing with drones for 20 years over the course of counterterrorism missions that the United States and other actors have carried out. So I want to say the drone is just a weapon. It is a weapon like any other. It comes with positives and negatives, especially for civilians um, that are involved in the attacks by drones. So yes, it is pressing a button. Um, but that does not take away any of the obligations under the laws of war. And in fact, some of the positives are that when uh, forces come in contact, it's called troops in contact uh, with perhaps Hamas or, or another adversary, that's actually when civilians can be um, even more harmed mm. because, you know, they get into these firefights and, and it all happens so quickly, whereas a drone attack can be... Um, I don't want to call it premeditated. It can be planned. It can be deliberate. Um, and you can use precision guided mission munitions. But again, you have to balance what you are going after with that target with the civilian harm that you believe you're going to cause, no matter the weapon. So I wanted to ask you about potential accountability for Israel's actions. Humanitarian groups seem largely in lockstep criticizing the disproportionate use of force. Now, many scores more children, um, I think multi multiple, mul multiple times more children have been killed, children alone, uh, than uh, Israelis were killed on on October 7th. The death toll is now uh, over 8,000. Um, and most recently, you had the director of the UN's New York office resigning after 30 years and writing a pretty scathing letter about um, what he feels like the humanitarian organization he belonged to was able to do in their complicity. He wrote, as a human rights lawyer with more than three decades of experience in the field, I know well that the concept of genocide has often been subject to political abuse, but the current wholesale slaughter of the Palestinian people rooted in an ethno-nationalist settler colonial ideology. In, con in continuation of decades of their system systematic persecution and purging, based entirely on their status as Arabs, and coupled with explicit statements of intent by leaders in the Israeli government and military leaves no room for doubt or debate. This is a textbook case of genocide. 
Having people make these kind of strong statements, seeing the U.S. veto resolutions for a ceasefire in the U.N., um, knowing that Israel is not a member of the international, that the ICC criminal co court, what recourse is there of humanitarian organizations to coerce, persuade Israel to have a more proportionate response or to have a ceasefire if the United States and the U.N., because of the United States' veto power, is unable to do so? Sure. Well, the United Nations is one way um, uh, of getting a ceasefire or a pause or or at least getting the parties to conduct themselves um, according to the laws of war. But there are so many other ways. And I think that's what you're seeing from human rights and humanitarian organizations who are not necessarily saying that, you know, this is genocide, ethnic cleansing. Those are very powerful words and they require a legal analysis. And we're not there yet. Um, complicity requires a legal analysis and we're not there yet. But the, the suffering and the scale of suffering, I think, is why you're seeing this outrage and, and really all of these resignations, very powerful letter from the UN official. Um, so uh, my job here in Washington is to try to press, press the United States to do its part with Israel to make sure that they are abiding by the laws of war. And I know that U.S. officials all the way up to the president have been talking with Israeli officials about that. How hard they're pressing and whether or not it's making a difference is very unclear. Sarah Yeager, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. FBI Director Christopher Wray issued a stark warning yesterday that Israel-Hamas war posing a danger here at home, increasing the possibility of terrorist attacks on U.S. soil. Here's a clip of his testimony before the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. Let's watch. We assess that the actions of Hamas and its allies will serve as an inspiration the likes of which we haven't seen since ISIS launched its so-called caliphate several years ago. In just the past few weeks, multiple foreign terrorist organizations have called for attacks against Americans and the West. Al-Qaeda issued its most specific call to attack the United States in the last five years. ISIS urged its followers to target Jewish communities in the United States and Europe. He also pointed to several attacks that have taken place here, like the murder of a six-year-old Palestinian boy. Here in the United States, our most immediate concern is that violent extremists, individuals or small groups, will draw inspiration from the events in the Middle East to carry out attacks against Americans going about their daily lives. That includes not just homegrown violent extremists inspired by a foreign terrorist organization, but also domestic violent extremists targeting Jewish or Muslim communities. This comes as a student at Cornell University has been arrested in connections with online threats he made to, against Jewish students on campus. Police are accusing 21-year-old Patrick Day, a junior at Cornell, of posting these threatening messages calling for the deaths of Jewish people, including saying he was going to shoot up a Jewish dining hall and stab Jewish students on site. Campuses across the U.S. are facing an internal battle in protecting students competing free speech and safety interests amidst the explosion of war in the Middle East.
Mm. Yeah, it, it was kind of a, maybe remarkable, but not so remarkable. I'm not sure what the capacity of people are to track down these people who say things on chat rooms. We've seen several instances of police making contact with folks who've made these sorts of threats, not bringing them in, and then seeing horrible tragedies unfold, right. like the 18 people we just saw killed in Maine and, you know, a couple dozen others injured there. So I, I think these threats were completely inappropriate, and it's a good thing that the um, uh, cops are able to track him down. It's interesting, the parents seem, his parents seem very surprised by this, and they were talking about some ongoing mental health issues he's been experiencing, and I do wonder if this is going to be read through that same lens of this is someone with a mental health disorder um, that is often evoked when certain other kind of shootings um, come up. Yeah, and, and this, is, like, this is a good example of why I'm why I always caution against saying uh, against saying an attack or something is modal on, on any side, no matter what direction it's coming from, mm -hmm. is a, is an example of ideologically motivated violence or extremist hate. This person was clearly targeting Jewish students. Mm -hmm. he, he was going to target a Jewish dining hall. He's also, according to his parents, obviously we're going to learn more information, uh, very mentally ill and depressed. They worried he was a suicide risk to himself. Mm -hmm. He is he is mentally unwell and. The, manifest, the manifestation of that unwell char characteristic was a threat against Jewish people, perhaps because that's what's going on in the news and that's what the valence is. I mean, that, that frankly, that could also be true of the of the um, the man who killed tragically that six-year-old boy. Maybe he's mentally sure. ill, and this is the manifestation of what. So, people people are very quick uh, quick to pass judgment. In in uh, cases where it's plausibly there's a hate motivation or there's but it it is complicated because you, or, even ordinary people who are hateful don't generally commit violence. People who are racist, people who are anti-Semitic, people who are anti-Islamic, people who have bigoted views, um, they they don't commit violence. The people who do commit violence often have overlapping extreme mental health problems that that are frankly probably the the looming larger issue. Yeah, according to his parents. Uh Day sunk into a deep depression back in 2021, year, one year after he started his engineering studies degree at Cornell. Cornell does have this reputation of having a lot of depression, mental illness, and suicides on campus. There, the the gorges um, that are near Cornell's campus are known as a suicide spot. This is this is like a stereotype the university has. Um, I think because of the rigor of the place, the um, focus on some of these STEM sciences uh, and the very cold and isolated location make it a place where a lot of people find it very difficult mm. to be uh, happy. But to your point, most people who are unhappy don't manifest it in this way and certainly don't make such explicit statements targeting uh, a particular ethnic group the way that Day did. Um, so I'm sure we will hear more about this. I, I do think there's some concern people have about whether or not instances like this where someone is clearly making very specific targeted anti-Semitic statements is lumped in with folks, including many, many Jewish students who are protesting at universities across the country in uh, support of the uh, rights of Palestinians. Sure, and these things, occupation. frankly, these things should be very easy to distinguish. You have they absolutely <laughs> every right to engage in protest. It's your First Amendment right. You cannot engage in violence or destruction. You can't make explicit threats, but you you sh can and should organize to uh, to have your viewpoint expressed. That is clearly protected. Um, it's it's. 
it's protected in public places, it's protected on college campuses, um, et cetera. Um, we, we should not gloss over the, the beginning of the segment about the FBI saying there mm. could be threats in the homeland, which is, I mean, legitimately frightening. I, I don't know if you remember, you know, during the kind of height of ISIS, there were not a large number of attacks, but there were a couple um, homegrown uh, terrorist cells who were inspired by what ISIS was doing abroad, um, resulting in in, uh, in in plots within the country that were you know that were not connected to ISIS in really any formal way, but were 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 inspired by the terrorism they were committing, and um, and that was very frightening at the time. Yeah, and I, and I do think it's worth—it's it's good that Ray noted that the one instance that we have of someone being motivated by the events in the Middle East that has actually execu you know, executed their attack and successfully killed this six-year-old Palestinian-American boy and stabbed many times and seriously injuring his, his mother as she was trying to protect him, um, was not someone who was killing—you know, had murdered um, mm -hmm. a Jewish person, but someone who— took the calls of a kind of jihad day seriously and felt, either because of mental illness or hate or some combination of the two, like it was incumbent on him to preemptively murder a six-year-old child um, because he, I guess, was a jihadist in his mind. Um, so who knows the way these things are going to manifest, but it does seem very clear that this conflict is making everyone who is Arab or even looks Arab—we saw a lot of Sikhs um, become targets in the wake of— 9-11, uh, and as well as the Jewish community, less safe. For sure. Well, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis recently defended his actions to deactivate pro-Palestinian groups across college campuses in the Sunshine State. Let's watch. This is not cancel culture. Uh, this group, they themselves said in the aftermath of the Hamas attack that they don't just stand in solidarity, that they are part uh, of this Hamas movement. And so, yeah, you have a right to go out and demonstrate, but you can't provide material support to terrorism. They've linked themselves to Hamas. And so we absolutely decertified them. Uh, they should not get one red cent of taxpayer dollars. Uh, and we also have strong laws in Florida against fundraising for groups like Hamas. And we are enforcing those vigorously. It's not a First Amendment issue. That's a material support to terrorism issue. DeSantis's crackdown comes as the Senate also joined in condemning anti-Israel student groups. Uh, that's uh, their framing in a resolution last Friday. Per The Intercept, both are part of a larger trend of backlash to pro-Palestinian uh, advocacy growing across the U.S. One legal activist told the outlet, quote, we are seeing people being fired from their jobs, being investigated by HR over their social media posts or conversations with colleagues, and having job offers rescinded. There is a clear trend that people's jobs are being targeted right now. What, what do you make of this uh, and, and Ron DeSantis's um, framing of this as not a First Amendment issue, saying that people are fundraising for Hamas? Isn't this very similar to the accusations people were making about, say, the Canadian protesters and why go fund me justified shutting down fund rate the, the ability of that group to raise uh, bail funds and the like well I mean the Canadian truckers should not be considered a terrorist group and Hamas should be considered a terrorist right, group. But these people that, aren't fundraising for Hamas right no I, I I looked at the issue I wrote about it I I I don't disagree with DeSantis's characterization of the group's position. I think the things the group wrote in its toolkit are horrific, but they have every right to say them. Which they group? have every right to uh, the he's, national he's shutting down justice uh, for Palestine. Palestine groups, uh, pro Palestine groups across the basically state. Well, it's the same group. It's the Florida chapter system. in two different. 
at, at multiple colleges. It's the same group, National Students for Justice in Palestine. So they have they have material. So I read their toolkit, which endorses the actions taken October 7th very unequivocally. So I'm totally against what this group represents, and I completely disagree with them. But I disagree with the governor. They have a right to engage in that. Um, that advocacy. It's not providing material support to a terrorist group. Also, his order doesn't—it it orders them to stop, um, to basically to disband this group and re, um, reorganize on campus with a different name. So you're not even going to stop their activism. I, the idea that this is, like, like formally connected to Hamas in some way that gets around First Amendment protection is, I think, laughable. Yeah, it's notable that several people have come out and disagreed with uh, Ron DeSantis on this from the Republican side of the aisle, including Vivek Ramaswamy and Candace Owens, uh, who've been uh, pretty principled on this. Uh, Glenn Greenwald has been talking a lot about this on his show and mine as well recently. I do wonder if this is going to strike a significant blow to the credibility of actors like Ron DeSantis, who have made so much of their kind of political campaign posture about being the vanguards and protectors of free speech. And it's worth pairing this with some other instances that we've talked about on the show before, where the Cop City protesters were labeled as terrorists and their efforts to raise bail money for people who were arrested for doing things like passing out flyers, another clear uh, speech right, was uh, attacked by the state and characterized as raising money for terrorism. How far is this going to go? Yeah, I mean, you know, we've, uh, we've seen people being very, in, in the past, very selective and hypocritical about the, you know, cancel culture, whether they support firings and, and uh, opportunities being taken away or people being expelled, that sort of thing, based on um, offensive or otherwise statements they've made. And, you know, I've always been on the side of saying that a lot of this behavior is protected by the First Amendment from, you know, from a legal standpoint. And then, of course, you know, firing someone, you can do whatever you want. But I don't think it's good for society to have a broad norm where everybody the second you say something wrong, or we go digging into your past to find out something you did or said um, when you were young, a lot younger, and we're going to punish you for it now, is, is really good in an era where we can easily hold each other to account, where our statements are captured on video and are made in text that stick around forever. It will be very easy to hold each other accountable um, to a level that will be paranoid and unhealthy. Well, also, because Ron DeSantis is specifically saying this is not a First Amendment concern because it's terrorism. So if simply labeling something you don't like terrorism is able to successfully right. stand at any point as um, absolving you from your free speech protection, I mean, I was on that's Fox a terrifying News. I was on world. Fox News on Sunday, and I made this point. Like, you know, the federal government thinks January 6th protesters are terrorists. So let's, they think anti-vaccine <laughs> people are terrorists. They think wielders of misinformation are, are you know, stochastic terrorists. I mean, so, let, so we don't, we can't have a government that has, that has unlimited ability to define terrorism as just speech they don't like and punish them for it. And that's something Republicans understand on a lot of issues. But, but not is, on this one. Not and, and the reason why I have always felt very strongly about this issue is because the core, the core group that has always borne the brunt of these kind of um, shifts in law and standards have been people who have advocated against U.S. war interests and particularly in defense of Palestinians. We saw how even supporting BDS has been criminalized in, well, I shouldn't say criminalized in the South, but has made you ineligible for government contracts in the South. These attempts to make it 
borderline illegal to support a boycott, which is one of the few nonviolent ways people can resist the occupation in Palestine. It's really incredible stuff. There's been some fascinating things happening in, in with environmental protesters, where there's been a ratcheting up of criminal penalties for people who, you know, chain themselves to buildings and trees and pipelines and, and things. There's one protester who's in jail for nine years for one such action, which is longer than a lot of, uh, you know, people who commit violent felonies. Um, are in jail for. And it does increasingly feel like there is a push to uh, both shrink uh, the levers of democracy available in the United States at the same time that you limit the uh, uh, extra electoral means at people's disposal to advocate for what they want out of our government. And so we will continue, of course, to follow um, incur incursions on people's free speech rights and protest rights right here on Rising. Please do stick around. We'll rise with you after this. Multiple protesters calling for a ceasefire in Gaza repeatedly interrupted Secretary of State Antony Blinken's testimony yesterday at a Senate Appropriations Committee hearing on Israel. Thank you for this opportunity to testify before you today. Not in the face of Russia's aggression against Ukraine. Not in the face of an intensifying strategic competition in the Indo-Pacific and around the world. If the witness will suspend, and I ask that everyone again respect this hearing, we will suspend until the room is closed. Each time a protester was escorted out of the hearing by police, Blinken would then resume his testimony just to be interrupted by another protester. It's helped make sure that Russia's invasion and strategic... Committee will suspend... Joining us now to discuss is someone who was in the room when this all happened. Code Pink co-founder Media Benjamin joins us now. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Nice to be with you. So what is your goal in, and I, you were one of the, the people protesting there, um, what are you hoping to achieve? We wanted to send a strong message to Secretary of State Blinken, uh, Secretary Austin, as well as to the senators and, of course, the American people, uh, that while 66% of Americans want to have a ceasefire, uh, that is not something that the Biden administration is calling for, and there is not one senator in the entire Senate that is calling for a ceasefire. So we thought it was important to get this message out that we are appalled that the U.S. has given the green light to Israel 
to bomb the civilians of Gaza and is now asking for $14 billion more after giving almost $4 billion a year of our tax money to create this very oppressive system that has led to this conflict. So um, we're glad that we had a chance to speak up. We're hearing from people around the world that say uh, that they are relieved to see that there are people in the United States. And of course, they've seen the many protests that have been happening all around this country, organized by Jewish groups, by Muslim groups, by uh, all kinds of organizations. So I think we just have to increase the pressure on our Congress and our administration if we're going to get our voices uh, heard in a more effective way. You mentioned that not a single senator has supported a ceasefire. A number of senators have uh, advocated for a humanitarian pause. But the word ceasefire seemed to be um, uh, un unsayable among this crew, even among uh, progressives like Bernie Sanders. I do wonder the extent to which Code Pink has reached out to his office and what, if anything, you've heard uh, from his team about why this seems to be a line in the sand for sen senators. Yes, uh, we've been uh, going to Bernie Sanders' office on a regular basis. There were people arrested in his office last week. Uh, and we've been going to the offices of members of the House as well, including sit-ins in the offices of progressive members of the House. And we find that they are very reluctant. In fact, there's only 18 members of the House that have signed on to Cori Bush's very simple resolution calling for a ceasefire. Some of them have put out their own individual statements, which is uh, something we are also encouraging. This issue of a humanitarian pause is better than nothing, but it really just means uh, stop the bombing while we send some aid in and then we'll continue bombing them as well. The best thing we can do uh, is to keep people alive, to stop the bombing and the land invasion. And we know that 10, every 10 minutes there is a child who is being killed. That's why our message was save the children of Gaza. And we don't understand why that is so hard for people in Congress. Of course, there is the impact of the uh, pro-Zionist lobby, like the AIPAC lobby. There is the influence of the weapons industry. And there is this long-term connection that so many, including Biden himself, have had with Israel. But at a time like this, it's important to bring out the humanity of people who are supposed to be representing us and say, let's stop the killing of all of these children and innocent civilians. I'm just curious, how were you treated when you were removed from that protest by the, uh, by the security personnel who did that? Well, my arm is hurting from being uh, pulled out, but I must say that the Capitol Police are quite professional. Uh, they held us for a couple of hours. They charged us a fine. And then if you didn't have any priors, uh, people were let go. Uh, they have seen a lot of protests in the last couple of weeks. Uh, there were over 300 that were arrested in the Cannon Rotunda uh, in that massive protest that the uh, progressive Jewish community put on. Uh, so they are actually not only professional, but a lot of them, I think, are sympathetic. We're finding a lot of sympathy within Congress. There are people who are walking around uh, draped in Palestinian flags or wearing kofiyas, and they're getting thumbs up uh, from the staff. When we go into some of the offices, uh, we are thanked profusely from some of the staff. Uh, there is uh, this anonymous letter that you've probably talked about, uh, written uh, by over 400 members of, of the staff in the Congress, 
so I think there is a growing sentiment within not only the Congress, but within the State Department, where we have a number of friends who say they're extremely unhappy with the U.S. position. When Blinken was talking about the importance of abiding by the rules of war during the hearing, one protester had this to say. The president and I have both stressed the need for Israel to operate by the rule of war. Committee will suspend. Let them be at the table. Why aren't they at the table? Cease fire now. I beg you. Cease fire now. Secretary Blinken, you may continue. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Chair. So I was saying the President and I both stressed in our conversation. And here is what Secretary Blinken had to say in response to the protesters in the room. I also hear very much the passions expressed in this room and outside this room. All of us are committed to the protection of civilian life. All of us know the suffering that is taking place as we speak. All of us are determined uh, to see it end. Uh, but all of us know the imperative of standing up with our allies and partners when their security, when their democracies are threatened. Regarding his thoughts on a ceasefire that so many protesters are adamantly calling for, Blinken said this. When it comes to a ceasefire, in this moment, you're exactly right. Uh, that would simply consolidate what Hamas has been able uh, to do uh, and allow it uh, to uh, remain where it is and potentially repeat what it did uh, another day. And that's not tolerable. Uh, no nation would tolerate it. We do believe that uh, we have to consider things like humanitarian pauses to make sure that assistance can get to those who need it and that people can be protected and get out of harm's way. But we can't have a, a situation where there's a reversion to the status quo, where when this is over, it goes back to Hamas being responsible for the governance uh, and uh, so-called security uh, of Gaza, because that's simply an invitation to repeat what happened. And again, no nation would tolerate that. So how do you respond to his contention there that if there was a ceasefire, it would just allow Hamas to consolidate its position, to regroup, and to plot further violence against Israelis? Well, one, we need a ceasefire to protect the lives of civilians. And uh, Blinken is just uh, uh, such a hypocrite when he says the U.S. is working to make sure that civilian lives are being protected because they're not. Uh, the Israelis are just hit the Jabalia refugee camp, which is full of civilians. Uh, the other thing is that this bombing is actually creating more more recruits for Hamas and probably more radical groups like Islamic Jihad. Um, we are seeing parents say that they can't control their uh, teenage sons who are saying that uh, this has created so much hatred for Israel that they want to join and take revenge in whatever way we, they can. So every day this goes on, um, Israel is creating more people who have an intense hatred towards Israel. Uh, the only way to solve this is really getting at the root causes. Uh, I have been to Gaza seven times, and I know uh, the horrific circumstances in which the people of Gaza have been living. Uh, and unless there is some real attention to uh, are we serious about a two-state solution, and if so, how are they going to get rid of the hundreds of thousands of settlers uh, who are on Palestinian lands, or are they serious about a one-state democratic 
country in which there are equal rights for all. Uh, and how in the world is that going to be created when you have these extremists uh, in the Israeli government? So um, Israel has created Hamas. We know they have supported Hamas over the years to divide the Palestinian leadership. Uh, Israel is creating more terrorists every day that it bombs uh, Gaza. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, we've been covering some of the uh, rise in settler violence in uh, the West Bank. That's uh, Israeli settlers who have, in many cases, been armed by the Israeli government and who have taken um, this opportunity or this uh, um, the reality of troops being redeployed from that area to uh, Gaza to uh, have a kind of a free-for-all. There have been reported video and video video evidence of abuse of Palestinians um, that have evoked Abu Ghraib and the abuses of our own uh, U.S. military uh, during um, the Iraq war. So it's, it, is, it is very difficult to watch this all pan out. And I'm curious uh, to know how likely you think the, the kind of discussion that uh, Joe Biden is initiating about a two-state solution is to actually pan out in light of that settler violence. I think it's very unlikely. I just don't see how this is going to pan out. One thing I do think that the administration is having grave concern is, uh, will this spread into a regional war? Uh, will Hezbollah get involved? What will happen with Iran, uh, Syria? There are so many uh, uh, groups around Israel uh, that are feeling that, uh, wondering how long they can stay out of this fight. Uh, and yet the administration does not want to see this extend to a regional war. Uh, and that means they're going to have to stop the Israeli government. So um, it's a tremendous bind for the administration. In the meantime, they're just asking for more and more money uh, to solidify the Israeli hold over Palestinian lives, Palestinian land. Uh, and the opposition is growing all around the world. We see the call for the ceasefire coming from the secretary general and coming from the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of countries around the world. Uh, and it's also uh, a question how long the, uh, uh, the repressive leaders of the Arab world can keep their people in check because there is so much anger growing every day when they see the conditions. They're watching things like Al Jazeera. They're seeing uh, the horrific suffering of people on the ground. Uh, and I don't uh, think this can go on for very long without a real uprising in many countries in the region. Dia Benjamin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. I just want to say that what the one thing that we can do is put more pressure on our members of Congress and, and to get out in the streets and the protests. So I hope people will join us on Saturday, big protest in Washington, D.C., 2 p.m., starting at Freedom Plaza. More rising right after this. A Hamas official and spokesperson has vowed to repeat the events of October 7th, quote, again and again until all of Israel is annihilated. Let's watch. ولا أن نلحق الأذى بهم لكن أوقات لأنه في تعقيدات في الميدان صارت 
باول في منطقه موجوده وكان هناك في احتفال وكان في سكان ومنطقه واسعه ليست سهله على امتداد تقريبا 40 كيلومتر بس يجب ان ينتهي ان ينتهي وين بقطاع غزه ينتهي الى لا بتكلم عن كل الاراضي الفلسطينيه كل الاراضي الفلسطينيه يعني زوال طبعاً. اسرائيل اه طبعا وجود اسرائيل غير منطقي وجود اسرائيل هو اللي بخلق كل هذه الالام والعذابات والدموع والدماء هي اسرائيل مش احنا احنا ضحيه الاحتلال نقطه واخر السطر لذلك ما حدا يلومنا احنا ايش اللي بنعمله في 7 اكتوبر في 10 اكتوبر في مليون اكتوبر احنا اللي بنعمل مبرر it is justified مبرره Last night, Kentucky Senator Lindsey Graham spoke with CNN's Abby Phillips on the Israel-Palestine conflict. Let's watch. Civilian casualties. Is there a threshold for you, and do you think there should be one for the United States government, at which the U.S. would say, Let, let's hold off for a second in terms of civilian casualties? I, I, is, there, I, is there a point at no, which no. you would start to question no, I, If somebody asked us after World War II, is there a limit what you would do to make sure that Japan and Germany don't conquer the world? Is there any limit what Israel should do to the people who are trying to slaughter the Jews? The answer is no, there is no limit, but here's what you need to do, be smart. Let's try to limit civilian casualties the best we can. Let's put humanitarian aid in areas to protect the innocent. I'm all for that, but this idea that Israel has to apologize for attacking Hamas, who's embedded with their own population, needs to stop. The goal is to destroy Hamas. Hamas is creating these casualties, not Israel. I don't think anyone's civilian casualties. Is there a threshold? This comes as we are now learning that the Jabalaya refugee camp near Gaza City has been bombed yet again. Dr. Shida Parsi points out on X says there was no condemnation by Biden, let alone any meaningful pressure by the U.S. on Israel to stop these atrocities after Israel bombed a refugee camp yesterday. Israel went ahead and bombed that same refugee camp again today. Yeah, I mean, something that strikes me as I listen to both those statements from the Hamas spokesperson and Lindsey Graham is how there's a weird parallelism between the two of them. Both are saying that there is no limit to the extremities that they'll go to to establish certain conditions. For Lindsey Graham, it's a return to the status quo before October 7th and the elimination of Hamas. For the Palestinians, it's the elimination of the apartheid conditions and the occupation that they've been living under for 75 years. And while it is common, we've heard it from Anthony Blinken, we've heard it from Joe Biden, we've heard it from the entire um, Republican and Democratic establishment, basically, that Israel has a right to defend itself, which means killing any number of civilians. Lindsey Graham seemed to want to make this comparison to World War II, we've been hearing a lot, where there is no limit to how many civilians should be killed to stop the Nazis and the Axis powers. But it does seem like there's a gap there, which is, are the civilians you're killing actually well tailored to ending the war? And that's the question, whether or not the largely indiscriminate bombing that's happening in Gaza is tethered to the desired outcome of getting rid of Hamas? Is it just creating more future fighters, whatever political banner they, they fall under, who are still going to want to achieve the same goal, which is liberation for themselves and their people and getting out of what has been described by 18 humanitarian groups and all of that as an open-air prison? And so, in some perverse way, they're after the the same goal, a root resolution of the conflict, but for Lindsey Graham, it's not the same root goal. It's different root goals. That's the problem. For Lindsey Graham, a return to October 6th is sufficient. And for Palestinians, 
they're articulating that it's never going to end until there is a meaningful equality uh, for their people across all of the Palestinian well, I don't know that that's what the law spokesperson was saying there. I mean, first, on the Lindsey Graham side, um, Lindsey Graham is the most hawkish voice in all of American politics. He wants war with Iran. Um, he, he is, I'm not going to say exactly an outlier, but he is very much you know, the neoconservative and then some. Um, he doesn't represent my part of the conservative movement. Um, you know, he's come under a lot of criticism from people like Tucker Carlson and others, you know, despite him being like an ally of Donald Trump on like a personal level. Um, he wants the most muscular and interventionist foreign policy possible. So I, and I absolutely disagree with him on basically his whole, whole entire foreign policy worldview and what he said there. Um, but I mean, what Hamas is saying is, what that spokesperson is saying is that they will continue the terrorist attacks until there is no Israel, until, until what, until all the Israelis are driven from the land. It's not just equality for the Palestinian people, which can and should be worked out. And this is why peace seems so elusive, because you're negotiating with an organization that, by their own admission, is not interested in a pal a Palestine and Israel existing side by side or together or in any format, but Israel must go away, well, which is no, never going to happen. It's, it's not in any format. The argument is against the, the logic of Israel in the eyes of Palestinians is to have a state that establishes an, ethno, an ethnicity supremacy, Jewish supremacy, a Jewish state, an ethno-nationalist state in the middle of an Arab world where, because of the population realities of the state, you cannot maintain that demographic majority in a voting sense without targeting and excluding people on the basis of their race slash religion. That's, that's the conflict. So the idea is that before Israel was established in 1948, there were Christians and Jews and, and Muslims, Arab Christians, Arab, people of all different ethnicities living in this location as they had for thousands of years. And the, the, the policies of Israel, the choice to enclose Gaza and restrict movement and barricade its waterways, not allow it to have an airport, not allow it to have its own economies, having 40 percent unemployment or whatever it was before um, the crisis emerged on the 7th, is all part and parcel of maintaining a demographic reality in Israel, and the same with the encroaching settlements, the illegal settlements that have been condemned by the national community and our own government, um, in which it, the, the country Israel prioritizes and incentivizes settlers to encroach and build houses and act violence on the Palestinian population in the West Bank so that it's less and less likely that that contiguous piece of Palestinian land can ever stand alone as a Palestinian state. Let me try this again. You've, you've criticized rightly, I think, over and over again, the bloodthirsty statements made by Israeli actors and some of their supporters in, in uh, U.S. government and media um, for, for not properly—and I don't disagree with you—for not properly weighing the need to protect civilians. On the other side, here is Hamas saying, we will, we will over and over again deliberately we will, we will kill as many civilians as we killed on October 7th again and again and again until there is no state of Israel. Um, I mean, isn't, isn't, that, isn't that as bloodthirsty and unrealistic and counterproductive and, and anti-humanitarian 
as as anything on the other side? Oh, it is bloodthirsty. But you know the the difference is that my tax dollar. You know he doesn't represent me. Anthony Blinken does. Right. Um, our UN representative, uh, Lindsey Thomas Greenfield, Linda Thomas Greenfield does. Uh, so my tone and the in the kind of weight of my criticisms are heavier there because they directly implicate me. I don't have Maybe any, that's the root of I don't have any designs on Hamas. I can't like I can say that's very bad don't kill civilians but that hasn't that kind of has nothing to do with me. But if I do want the civilians to stop being killed, I'm not going to be indifferent to the underlying cause there, the people of Palestine and in Hamas is the elected government in Gaza that this is an expression of a political agenda that I very much do agree with, which is the liberation of the people of Gaza and the people of Palestine, generally speaking. And it's, it should be noted that this conflict did not start on October 7th. There was the Great March of Return in 2018, which was, I think, was the last major nonviolent effort for Palestinians to advocate for their own liberation. They marched in scads to uh, the walls that enclosed them in this open-air prison, and IDF soldiers stood at the top of those walls for days and weeks, shooting at protesters, killing over 100, and um, injuring so many that there are, are scores of people who walk around either amputees or permanently disabled because they were shooting at their knees and legs um, as part of their pre in the midst of this peaceful protest. So they're, at the end of the day, of course, Palestinians, I mean, would you be satisfied for your family and your heirs and your grandchildren and their great-great-grandchildren to live in an open-air prison where they drink polluted water and they aren't able to access medical conditions? They're not able to leave? They don't have an airport. They're not even able to fish in their own sea. Foreign countries I, 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 have designs on oil wells off their coast. I want all those. I want those circumstances alleviated for them. But what is neither justifiable nor helpful for fixing the situation is the the widespread slaughter of innocents on the other side, the taking of prisoners. And then the promise to do this again and again and again. What's, what it's going to produce and is already producing is just widespread death and destruction in Gaza. That's but, the immediate you know, effect, is thousands of deaths. I did think it was interesting, and you obviously have to take everything with a grain of salt, but I did think it was interesting to hear him say that they had military targets in Israel and that coming across that um, festival was not part of the plan. This has been described as a targeted—the uh, events of October 7th have been widely described as a targeted attack on— um, uh, civilians, even as it's been widely reported that the festival's location changed last minute. And that does seem to be a, a, like a true fact on the ground, that nobody knew that the festival was going to be there until the last minute, so whatever planning was done by Hamas to ad address any military targets were kind of thwarted by the reality of this music festival happening in the middle of this space so, so close to this um, concentration camp. Some people have objected to it being called an open-air prison because, of course, nobody was tried and convicted and thrown in there because of any uh, wrongdoing. So, you know, that's that. Um, and it does seem to suggest there was some knowledge, either because of PR or because of some sense of personal ethics. They didn't actually want to target civilians. But as I've made the point on this show before, occupied peoples do have a right to resist, and they do have a right to do so using violence and force and militarily. And Hamas is the military, political representative of um, Palestine. And yes, they are going to keep fighting I mean, they haven't for their, held elections. Their they're a, the Palestinian people are 
governed by a dictatorship that hasn't held well, they free elections. Had elections. Most of them haven't been able, had no opportunity. You've pointed that's that true. out before that's, as a reason to, to deny the legitimacy of. Uh, I mean, I I use that to deny the legitimacy of Hamas's stewardship of Gaza. It is not done with the—they've not had a vote to see if it reflects the will and the consent yeah, of the people. Yeah, that, that's true. And even when Hamas was elected, it was with 50, fewer, less than 50 percent of the vote at the time. But there was, you know, there were multiple parties at play, so they were still able to win. But this is also the only representation that there is, and they have. So, you know, I—I I, I don't know. Like, the, people are not—people do have the right to resist. I mean, you keep saying that, but if resistance takes the form of the of the murder and kidnapping of non-combatants, they they don't they don't. Enjoy, I mean, if, if whoever's giving them the right to do that, I, I disagree with. Well, I, I do not think you should have the right to do that. Law. Look, you can resist. Well, and that's then not. Be... We've gone. That's not part of international law. No, the resistance is part of international law. The killing. No of international law is, sanctions isn't. the sanctions hostage taking. Well, no, but also international law doesn't sanction the. Thousands of Palestinians that are kept without a trial. But does it, but does it make it because they did something wrong? Now you can do hostage well, shaking. No, let me just finish the sentence though. International law also doesn't sanction the thousands of Palestinian prisoners that are kept in Israel, and that's part of what the negotiation is about. So yeah, Israel isn't allowed to do by international law to kill 8,000 civilians, 70 percent of which are women and children. It isn't allowed to bomb hospitals. It isn't allowed to bomb schools. It isn't allowed to bomb churches. But here we are. So it is very interesting to me that there is this asymmetry. I would agree that neither side should be doing any doing any of those things. But the United That's States. Fine. We can just stop there. Neither they, side well, should be doing well, these things. Well, I have things. a little bit more to say, though. The United States is standing by Israel as it does exactly that with our tax dollars and with our stated support. There's not a single senator in the United States of America, from Bernie Sanders to I don't know who's the most right wing senator you can think of, who will support a ceasefire. Um, and that, that is what my government is backing, and that is what my government is behind, and that's what the international community is trying to push back against. And it seems to me, in the interest of these 19, 20, 21-year-old Israeli soldiers that just died earlier this week on the ground incursion, in the interest of the 1,400 Israelis that just that died on October 7th, and in the interest of the 8,000 Palestinians that have died over the last three weeks, and the hundreds and thousands more Palestinians that have died and suffered over the last 75 years. If people are really interested in ending the cycle of violence, what we just saw between the Lindsey Graham quote and the Hamas quote is an illustration of how the cycle of violence works, then you have to be serious about committing in a way that Bibi Netanyahu, who never has been, but committing to a real resolution for what it means to free Palestinians. Right. And, I mean, neither side, unfortunately, is interested in a sustained end to the violence. Well, and, and I well, think you true. speak to... No, I, I think that's quite obviously true. I mean, we just played the clips, and and Hamas's Israel own charter supports the uh, a two-state solution at this point. I mean, that's not what the spokesperson just said. The spokesperson just said no to a two-state solution. No, he, he said no he Israel. Didn't, he didn't say no to a two-state solution. And uh, people really have he to internalize. He said there will be there will be widespread death and destruction yeah, until there's really, no Israel. People have to really internalize. Israel is an apartheid state. When people are talking about, when, when the Muslim community, when Arab communities are talking about an end to an Israel, they mean an end to a state, just like South Africa. Ending an apartheid didn't mean that South Africa literally stopped existing off the map, or that every white South African was banished from the country or murdered in their homes. What it meant was an end to a system, a state, a, a state that established one race in the case of South Africa, or one religious group in the case of Israel, as superior to all the rest in the eyes of the law. That's what they want an end to. And that is what Israel is. It has established itself 
definitionally as an ethno-nationalist state. That, that, so I don't know. Can you have an Israel with a religious symbol on its flag and all of that it means as with the right of return in a Jewish homeland at the same time, in, in any way that resembles what it is, while stripping out the, the ethno-nationalist part of it. I think that's impossible. And that's what people are talking about when they say that Israel in its current form has ceased to exist. And I don't think it's really helpful or constructive to skew every statement of that kind into, this means we have to murder all of the Israelis. Of course, that would be unconscionable. Nobody should support anything like that. But the question is, is the only alternative to that is supporting an ethno-nationalist state? That, that's a very, it's a tough question. It's one that a lot of people are grappling with right now, but I do think that's what's on the, that's what's on the table. We'll have more rising right after this. Well, Joe Rogan finally got a chance to talk about the Twitter files directly with Elon Musk. Let's watch some of that. What was that like? Is that, to me, that was the most bizarre, was the Twitter files. When you let Schellenberger yeah. and Matt Taibbi and all those guys get in the Twitter, and the, the response were, Matt Taibbi gets audited. I mean, which is just wild. I mean, it's just so blatant and so in your face. Yeah, it's weird. No, I, I mean, the, yeah, the, the degree to which, and, and by, by the way, Jack didn't really know, know this, but the degree to which Twitter was simply... Um, an arm of the government was not well understood by the public. And uh, it, it was, there was no, it was whatever the official government, I mean, it was like Pravda, basically. Um, you know, it's a state publication is the way to think of old Twitter. It was a state publication. And was the justification from their perspective that they are progressive liberals, they have the right intentions, it's important that they stay in power, the progressive liberals stay in government and power, because this is, the, this is their... There, there was, there was uh, basically oppression of um, any, any views that would even, I would say, be considered middle of the road. Um, but certainly anything on the, the right, I'm not talking about like like far right, I'm just talking mildly right. The people like Republicans were suppressed at ten times the rate of Democrats. Um, now that's because uh, old Twitter was fundamentally controlled by the far left. Yeah, that's a really serious accusation and really important reporting to come out of the Twitter files. And you've heard me say it before. I just wish the project hadn't been ended because I do think there's a continuing need for transparency at Twitter and all the major media companies. And I would hope that Elon would continue to lead by example in that way. And I just regret the project ended over what seemed like an interpersonal dispute between him and Matt Taibbi. Yeah, it was deeply frustrating because um, we are so much better off now that we know about these revelations, that we know the extent to which, I, I mean, we, we might not have known, we might not have ever known how much communication there was with social media companies about the 2020 election, about so-called Russian information, about COVID that goes, you know, well beyond the scope that I think every, you know, people are going to have a range of opinions on what's the right level of interaction between governments and social media companies, what is genuinely misinformation and what's harmful speech and what should be allowed on the platform. But it went so far beyond, you know, message emails from the White House, from the White House 
um, uh, uh, outreach coordinator saying, you know, Biden is offended by this, or this is offensive to the Biden family, take this down now, why haven't you taken it down yet? Um, uh, lists of supposedly Russian accounts being constructed by, by gov loosely government-affiliated um, nonprofit watchdog groups, um, coming up with these lists of supposedly Russian accounts that are just wrong, that were not lists of Russian accounts, and having the FBI threaten Twitter into doing something about it. This, is, this was just a pervasive threat to Americans' uh, uh, First Amendment rights that is now being litigated in part with the um, Missouri case that's, um, that is actually going to be heard by the Supreme Court. Um, so the injunction got removed. Um, we talked about this mm -hmm. a couple days ago. So now they are free again to network, the government to network with the social media companies. But eventually we're going to have the Supreme Court weigh in and try to sculpt some standard for what's the right level of communication. But it was a, it was a very... Um, important project. I mean, it's one that, frankly, shifted my, my, um, the target of my ire from the moderators at the social media companies to the government itself. Um, you know, and I'm a libertarian, so I, like, I'm not, it doesn't, it's not that it surprised me necessarily. Um, and it wasn't, and you know, I, I think the companies, obviously, they, I mean, they, they do have the right to make speech-related decisions for themselves. It wasn't fun, uh, from my position all the time, defending, um, criticizing what they're doing, but saying, oh, but they have the right to do it. You know, everybody eventually rolls their eyes at that. Like, well, if you don't like what they're doing, you need some kind of solution for it over and over and over again. But then it became, well, they don't like what they're doing either. Mm -hmm. They're sort of being browbeaten into it um, very explicitly. And that is a that is a lever we can adjust. We can have, uh, we, we could have a law. We could have some kind of um, uh, standards for for the federal government's outreach to the companies that would be better for free speech. Yeah, I mean, one of the other things that I think is troubling is when I interviewed Matt Taibbi about this uh, on my own podcast, you know, most people who were interviewing him and talking to him either, you know, had their fangs out for him, um, like most of the Democrats in Congress, or they were very enthusiastic about uncovering the extent to which um, the right, in particular, was oppressed. But as we saw by how the establishment weaponized themselves against Bernie Sanders in his last two runs, there's also a great deal of left suppression, as we're seeing right now, against the um, speech interests of uh, pro-Palestinian advocates, including a number of Jewish advocates who've been repeatedly compared to Nazis by uh, Jonathan Greenblatt of the ADL and others, that there is no into the attacks that will also come down on the left. So one of the things I asked Taibbi about was how much exploration he had done, how much access he had been given to running searches on shadow banning and the like around issues like uh, Palestinian advocacy, looking at the 2020 Bernie primary and those kinds of things. And he hadn't had an opportunity to do so at the time that we talked. And very shortly thereafter, his access was ended. So I do regret at this time in particular that that wasn't, obviously from my subjective view, prioritized and that, that now all those opportunities are dried up. We saw Elon first fall out, fall out with Barry Weiss after she took what I thought was a pretty principled stand, saying that his censorship on Twitter of the Elon Jets account and the journalists that were covering the Elon Jets story was in stark contrast to all of the ideals he was stating about how he wanted the Twitter app to be free. They, she was then booted from the project. And then apparently because Matt Taibbi has a substack 
and uh, Elon found that to be too competitive with what he wanted Twitter to do. They ended up falling out. And I don't know, there was some in, there was some implication at some point that others like Aaron Maté or Lee Fong would be able to continue that work. But we haven't really heard anything about the Twitter files or any new releases from documents that hadn't already been um, disclosed since then. So I do think there's these ongoing questions. Elon Musk, in many ways, I think, has risen to the occasion and other ways has articulated a preference to go along with Modi's uh, censorship regime, for instance, and who knows what else is happening behind the scenes. And there's a little bit of an irony that giving us the peek behind the curtain, in some ways, makes me more suspicious about what's going on now, not just at Twitter, but all these other sites. And I do wish there, in the, in the, in the course of all of this litigation that's going on around the government's right to intercede, there was also a broader conversation about what transparency consumers could or should expect from these companies to really know how these moderation decisions are being made. One way or another, however they're biased, I just wish it were uh, transparent. We haven't talked about this yet, but Elon Musk recently said that he was going to change the whole monetization thing mm -hmm. to be subject to community notes. Mm -hmm. That if you're repeatedly being fact-checked by community notes, you're not going to be able to monetize those posts. I thought that was interesting. What do you make of that? I think it's interesting. On one hand, I think it's good. It obviously disincentivizes inaccuracy or people who are intentionally lying. At the same time, right now, community notes, I think, is organically motivated by people who are really trying to correct their record. Are you going to get into a place where people intentionally try to weaponize community notes to prevent people from being able to make money on the account? Are you going to see a bunch of liberals kind of nitpicking and finding technicalities mm -hmm. wrong with, say, a conservative's post? Because there's a way—we've seen Glenn Kessler over at Washington Post. We've seen the ways that you can find a technical mistake yeah. with almost anything. And if the community notes attaches, even if it's a very minor correction, is that going to be weaponized against people one way or the other in a way that— diminishes the value of the community note. Yeah, that's a good point. We'll have to see. Because I've really liked this feature so far. It's yeah. been a it's been a huge benefit um, to uh, to social media. It's the in fact it's the only remotely fact checking feature on a social yeah. media uh, site that is working at all. More rising right after this. Is Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on the outs? This is a question many around the world are wondering as Israel enters week four of its war against Hamas. Now, Vox correspondent Zach Beecham writes that typically during war, people rally around their government. But in Israel, there's a growing push to dump the prime minister, one with an outside chance of succeeding. A now-deleted tweet from the Israeli prime minister in which he criticized the Israeli military and security services during wartime has been labeled psychotic and bizarre, according to Israeli newspaper Haaretz. Since the beginning of the war last month, Netanyahu and his family have been trying to lay the blame on the Israeli defense forces. Amnon Shasua, who is the CEO of self-driving car company Mobile Eye, which is headquartered in Jerusalem, has called for Netanyahu's ouster. He says his government has been guilty of fail failures, dissonance, and incompetence. Protesting has taken place in Tel Aviv, demanding Netanyahu do a prisoner swap instead of prosecuting the military offensive in the manner he has declared. Uh, many claim Netanyahu has abandoned the hostages to achieve his war aims. Joining us now to weigh in is senior correspondent at Vox, Zach Beecham. Welcome, Zach. 
Hey, happy to be here with y'all. All right, now, how serious is the threat to Netanyahu when this conflict emerged, as I understand it, they instituted a coalition government, which uh, I, I felt like offered him some protection to pursue uh, this war the way he saw fit. But as we uh, pointed out earlier in this read, there he has been facing a, a, a great d degree of uh, frustration from the public, who feel like he is not prioritizing the release of hostages, and many people who blame him for the security failure on October 7th to begin with. So what's the lay of the land? Um, so we have to differentiate between two different coalitional arrangements. It's really important to understand just as background to get it, right? So before the war, there's 120 seats in Israel's Knesset, right? It's parliament. Right? Before the war, Netanyahu had 64 of those 120 seats in his coalition. There are lots of different parties in the Israeli system. His Likud party only has uh, 32 seats. Uh, so his Likud party only has 32 seats. So uh, let's, I'm sorry, um, are we doing this edited or is it gonna be just fully <laughs> recorded? I just blanked for a second on it. We can, we can start over your response if you want to, but yeah. we try to yeah, keep keep live. <laughs> yeah, okay, I'll cut from the beginning. Is that, <laughs> is that okay, production room? Okay. Okay. Um, so it's important, I think, to distinguish between two different components of uh, Netanyahu's political coalition. So the 120 seats in Israel's Knesset has a bunch of smaller parties. His Likud party does not have a majority on its own. Before the war, he had 64 seats in his coalition. Uh, now, after the war, one of the main opposition parties joined in an emergency cabinet agreement, right? So in order for his coalition government to survive, it doesn't need the emergency coalition, right? Because they'd vote against him under the circumstances they could be toppled. This is just for the purposes of prosecuting the war. He needs to lose five seats among the parties that supported him before the war. So it's a pretty tall order, right? Because those parties tend to be much more ideologically aligned with him. That being said, uh, the fact that there's growing discontent, you could see one in a Haaretz article where members of his own party were starting to talk about the need for him to go afterwards, right? And his poll numbers are disastrous to show his party losing about 40% of its seats if they were to go to elections sometime soon, indicates that it's not impossible to imagine a scenario under which internal discontent, even among his supporters, grows high enough that there's a move to push him out uh, with a vote that would replace him in the parliament. You know, we, we live in a more um, polarized time, certainly in the U.S., but there's evidence of that in a lot of other, um, uh, you know, Western countries. Um, I, I remember, you know, some speculation when COVID happened that, well, maybe that will boost Trump's approval rating. It actually, if anything, like accelerated his unpopularity uh, because there's not this kind of rally around the the person in a times of crisis is uh, is tempered a bit by I think just how how much we vocally disagree is that is that the same case in Israel to some extent Oh yeah Israel was hugely polarized prior to the war right so this really all started with Netanyahu getting uh indicted on corruption charges right very very serious charges related to among other things tampering tampering with the freedom of the Israeli press uh, and so Netanyahu is, is indicted. He's currently on trial right now, though I don't think the trial is proceeding during the war. Uh, and that basically led to a political crisis in Israel, where the country was divided evenly between people who wanted Netanyahu to stay in office and his bitter opponents. And so it led to something like, like, like four or five elections in a very, very short number 
of years, right? And eventually, after all of this political turmoil, right, he ends up losing power in 2021. He's out for a year, and then he comes back in 2022. Uh on this very, very, very narrow coalition that represents basically the extreme right of Israeli society on the whole, right? And it means it means his Likud party, which is mostly a vehicle for his own ambitions, um, the radical right settler faction, religious Zionism, and two ultra-Orthodox parties, which primarily care about the interests of their own community. Um, but they were polarized against the center and the left of Israeli society, who believes Netanyahu is an existential threat to Israeli democracy. And matters got a lot worse when earlier in 2023, he tried to push through an overhaul to Israel's court system, right? And this overhaul basically would have brought the courts under political control, uh, really, really, really freaked out most Israelis. It was, it was widely unpopular, uh, right? And it already led to him taking a major political hit. I mean, we're talking, it's spawning the largest political protest movement in Israel's history, right? It went on for months and months and months of street protests, sometimes paralyzing major cities, right? It, this is a huge deal. And then you layer on top of that, the worst security failure in Israel's history, right? The the October 7th attack I mean, and substantial evidence that he's personally responsible for it. And all of a sudden, right, the, the polarized logjam almost breaks. Right. People are really angry with Netanyahu, including people who had voted for him in four or five elections. Right. It, it's it's the, he and he doesn't have much. There's not much room for him to improve his political situation from beforehand because the people who hate him hate him even more. Really, it's it's likely unless the war goes super well and looks really, really easy for Israel, which I seriously doubt it won't, that, that he'll do much be able to do much to improve his political standing. Yeah, it's been just reported that I think at this point 12 or 13 uh, members of the IDF have been killed in the ground invasion uh, near Gaza City. When you read their ages, they're all 19, 20, 21. I do wonder if the death toll starts to go up among uh, Israeli soldiers as they move into a more ground war, as, as opposed to the bombing, the cost of which has been borne disproportionately by Palestinian civilians that will continue to affect his popularity. I did want to ask you, though, about his perception uh, internationally. I've read a number of reports about how basically every living American president has found him to be personally very difficult, if not uh, distasteful. And I recently spoke to Mark Lamont Hill, who's a scholar in this area on the region, who talked a lot about how what he says um, addressing his home audience versus what he says in English, what he says in Hebrew versus the speeches he makes in English, are often very uh, different, with these Hebrew statements uh, being somewhat more, um, I don't know, reactionary, alarmist, um, dare I say, uh, uh, authoritarian. One clip in particular has been going viral over uh, the last couple of days in which he uh, quotes uh, Deuteronomy, the New Testament, to say, uh, we need to utterly destroy all that Amalek have and spare them not, but display both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and don donkey. People have been taking this as a, people who understand and know the Bible well, have taken this as a genocidal statement uh, and an and and inducement to kill everybody and spare none. Uh, what do you make about how, uh, of how his, his um, kind of visibility on the international stage has affected uh, the support that he perhaps has in the United States and more broadly. Well, so I have a somewhat different interpretation of that Amalek quote than, than the one that you offered, 
Um, so it's often used, Amalek is a biblical figure that represents a sort of existential threat to the Jewish people. It's often used just as a code word for an enemy uh, among Jews, right? So you've, you've heard Hitler referred to as Amalek. Um, Haman, the villain of the Purim story, who tried to slaughter all the Jews in Persia at the time, also referred to as Amalek, right? So it's not that just using that term and the reference and the way that he made it does not strike me based on, you know, the way that I hear other Jews talk about it as necessarily a genocidal statement. What I will say sort of about his rhetoric in general is that he's trying to appeal often in Hebrew to a very, very particular and very extreme base. And I think your label of authoritarian is accurate, right? Netanyahu really, really is, I think at this point, unquestionably an authoritarian figure. Uh, the problem is that he's faced a society that's realized it. And so he's trying to figure out really desperately scrambling to secure his own political position and to stay out of jail. Like those are his primary objectives. And so a lot of the criticism inside Israel has oriented around his confusion of the state with his own personal well-being and welfare. Uh, and, and that's, I mean, it, it, it's hard to deny that claim if you look at what he's done and you look at the way that he's talked, right? You guys referenced that deleted tweet earlier, right? No responsible leader during wartime says, oh, it's all the military's fault. I don't have anything to do with it. It's not my problem, right? I wasn't warned of any of the security failures, right? Throwing your generals under the bus like that uh, and not claiming responsibility, it's just not what anyone expects of their political leadership during this time. And it's indicative of a broader way of thinking about this that is all filtered through the lens of his political and, and arguably physical survival. So that's, I, I would read everything that Netanyahu does through the lens of what is he doing to secure his political future? And I think that's very, very dangerous in the context. I, I mean, to, that's putting it mildly, right? In the context of, of a really bloody war. Hmm. Zach Beecham, thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot. When it was announced that former Fox News host Tucker Carlson's show was being taken off the air this past April, many around the country were shocked. The termination seemed to come so suddenly, almost like it was out of nowhere. I remember reacting to it live on this show. According to new reporting by former CNN host Brian Stelter, some of Carlson's staffers were not entirely shocked. According to Stelter, at this point, Carlson had alienated many people and instigated many internal and external scandals. And while at this point many saw him as the face of Fox News, one of his producers said it was always going to end badly. We were burning too bright. Stelter writes that six years into the primetime TV slot had reshaped Carlson, darkened his heart, and driven him to the edge, to the point where he began berating Fox News executives and, quote, in the view of some of his own colleagues, he became unglued. According to his internal critics, Carlson treated female executives as part and parcel with the misogyny displayed on his show. One host reportedly said that, quote, Tucker is very titillated by misogyny. So we should note this is all coming from Brian Stelter in his new book. Brian Stelter was a frequent critic of, or fre frequently criticized by Tucker Carlson. They were mutual critics of each other. Tucker Carlson made fun of him a lot. I've read through this Vanity Fair piece. I'm seeing a lot of attribution to unnamed producers and staffers. So, you know, these are all people that Stelter claims he talked to. I think Brian Stelter uh, on his show did a lot we've disagreed with, you know, kind of led the charge on the misinformation everywhere, it's so dangerous, blah, blah, blah. I think he has also done some good reporting on the situation at CNN subsequently to his own firing. Um, I just think everyone should, you know, take what they read here with a grain of salt. 
He tries to say it's kind of a conspiracy theory, the idea that Tucker was fired as a secret um, uh, consequence of the Dominion lawsuit, like there was a handshake agreement to settle the lawsuit that Dominion said you have to get rid of Tucker Carlson. That's one idea of his firing. Stelter describes that as conspiracy theory, um, although notes that um, the author Michael Wolf has, uh, in his book, The Fall, um, said that he had reporting that that was the case, that was not, and he doesn't have any sourcing to back that up. So we're just like, it's competing yeah, well, things well, with sources that are not backed up. Also, Stelter writes in this Vanity Fair piece, he agrees that both sides deny that that's the case, that Tucker Carlson and Fox News deny that this was No, Dominion and Fox deny that that's the case, not Tucker. Tucker... People have—I mean, they don't know. From my, 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 from my own conversations— says, though Carlson would later suggest his ouster was a condition of the Dominion suit, there's no evidence to support that theory, right. and both parties deny it. I think the both parties is Fox and Dominion in that, but it's not clear, I guess. Okay. Um, my conversations with Tucker people—I've not spoken to Tucker um, uh, sp directly or specifically uh, about this or— much else in a long time, but is that they are genuinely unaware of what is the reason, and they have like five theories, and that's one of them, and they're not sure. Um, but it, it, it's it's um, it's very interesting. I mean, obviously, it is the case that some of what Tucker had to say was—I think it's uncontroversial—made Fox uncomfortable, or you know, made uh, cause problems. I, I think it's probably true that he had a very loyal, the staff was very loyal to him personally. I mean, that's. You know, not so rare in in cable news or in the media to create a you know a, a sub staff that gets along really well with the personnel. You know, it's a team. You, and Tucker was good at fostering a team environment. I mean, I you know just full disclosure, I worked for him years and years ago, more than a decade ago, um, at the Daily Caller before he was on Fox, before the Trump era. It was where I kind of started out, and he was a great boss. He gave me great advice, and uh, was really beloved by the staff. I wonder what you make of some of the characterization of what the workplace was like. We read in earlier that uh, Tucker was, quote, very titillated by misogyny. Apparently, that's a quote from one of the unnamed hosts that's cited in this article. It goes on to say that some of the staffers theorized—well, that's a little personal—but theorized that his mother's mistreatment, he, she abandoned his family when he was six and due to negativity <laughs> toward women. That's neither here nor there. Um, the counterpoint I heard from a Tucker—from uh, a Fox lifer—now, this is in Tucker's defense—was that Tucker didn't respect anyone of any gender. <laughs> Carlson hit men with the same C-word, too. See you next Tuesday. So according to Fox's Boys Will Be Boys etiquette, he was apparently an equal opportunity basher. Quote, uh, quote um, parentheses, remember, this was supposed to be a defense of him. Does that um, kind of Boys Will Be Boys um, atmosphere resonate with you at all? I, I think he was, again, he's fiercely loyal to his people, whether they're not and not his people include men and women, or had historically at times that I've known him, and uh, and and he was um, he could be loud and abrasive and combative on their behalf toward external people trying to cause issues. I remember one time he like. Um, when I worked for him at the Daily Call, it was somebody wrote a story that actually I think the GOP was mad about. Um, I think maybe it was like accusing the GOP of too, being too soft on immigration or something like that. And we got a call from a, from a uh, from a uh, RNC staffer who was mad, and he just, he uh, it, it was a man. He 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 you know unleashed on the person in defense of the reporter who was female. So it was not it's not a male versus female thing. He was loyal to the team. He he supported his people and that's why his people generally over time have been very loyal to him in turn. No, I, I hear that. I, I guess the question isn't about the loyalty of the team, it's whether or not 
um, the atmosphere that's being described here is accurate. One, because if it is, it does suggest that there is some accurate reporting that's being done here and that these sources are giving a at least an accurate mm. gloss on what the work atmosphere was. That's not to say that cursing a lot or whatever is justification for his firing, but they explain it like this. They say, Carlson told a friend that the word rhymes with duck is so overused it's lost all its power and meaning, so rhymes with bunt was more effective. Um, it's super naughty, but he it's to the point. point. He has a point there. Right, but does, you know, I, I think the, I, some of the arguments being made here is that there's many reasons why this wasn't necessarily surprising. Um, and part of it was that he did make enemies within Fox. People who were not on his team obviously did not find him to be so friendly. And that there were people who potentially were on his team that might not have been yeah. as comfortable with this environment. Well, he was clashing. I mean, the, the media environment we're living in right now, the news cycle we're going through, um, I frankly, I think he is sorely missed as a fixture on cable news because he would he clashed with uh, other perspectives in the conservative movement, particularly on foreign policy. And to have him, you know, not he's still obviously he's still active. He's still we're covering the things he's saying. Um, but to not have, you know, automatically at whenever it was seven or eight p.m., it flips over to. Sean Hannity or from Jesse Waters to Tucker, where you where you get a, a very different attitude about what the proper role of the U.S. government is in the world stage, the proper role of our funding, you know, whether this is making us safer, more in that um, libertarian or America first or, you know, paleoconservative, whatever word you want to give to it, uh, so different and so important. And um, I, I think it's... Um, Really, and, and, may, and again, maybe that, I have no evidence of this, but maybe that different perspective, you know, people say, it's personality problems, too difficult to work with, too mean to others. Is that because you didn't like what he had to say? Is that, are you, you know, rounding up that his perspective was totally contrary to yours and was popular and was the most popular thing on television? Is that what you mean by difficult to work with? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, but this keeps coming up and it is frustrating that we do live in a world where sometimes people are targeted for their beliefs but also a world where sometimes those people do things that are kind of morally wrong or in some cases legally wrong. We had this conversation around Russell Brand. You know, I think it is reasonable to raise the question of why his bad behavior, much of which he confessed to in his own books, only became an issue when it did, when he was done with Hollywood, but saying things that were inconvenient to the system. I think that's a perfectly legitimate question right. to We don't raise. even need to speculate, because in the article where the accusers come forward, they say it's important to do so because of the harm he's causing now with his misinformation. And yet, it doesn't obviate the need for an investigation if he really, in fact, did sexually assault people or engage with someone who's underage, or whatever the accusations uh, are. I think it wasn't underage it was in England, so it wasn't. Yes. It would have been in the United States, but not in England. So, you know, it were this, we had this conversation with Donald Trump. You know, it, I, I debated this with Glenn Greenwald actually recently, and it's like, okay, is this a political prosecution? Obviously. But at what point do we say we still have to prosecute a crime? If Trump really did murder someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue, are we going to say we can't have a murder trial because he's running for president? I mean, where does the line come? And so, I mean— You're just part of the left trying to get Trump at any cost. <laughs> sure. I'm kidding. You know, it's, it's, it's just—it gets a little exhausting. And you do, you do wish that people like Tucker Carlson, given—I do think there is, frankly— value in someone, at least one person, not being a war hawk at Fox News, 
Um, I, I think there was value in him being here there, largely because it's, from my perspective, the best of a bad bunch on this one very narrow issue. Whether that weighs out some of the other stuff he said, that's up for debate. But on this one narrow issue, sure. If that being the case, you wish people would protect themselves a little better, not make themselves such vulnerable targets. Uh, other theories articulated in this article as to why he might have been fired is because he did that Ray, Ep Ep Ray Epps episode where uh, he said, I'm going to do everything I can to ruin your life. And Epps was uh, expected to file a lawsuit against Fox as a consequence. Of course, the Dominion stuff. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And if you really are valuable, if you really are going to be the Republican nominee, if you really are a unique voice of a generation, you know, uh, it would help, I think, for people to keep their noses a little cleaner. Sure, Maybe but not say so many C-bombs in the workplace. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, also, but people had their knives sharpened for him. Um, and I don't think it's an accident that his perspective was so popular and so different. But uh, yes, let's all aspire to uh, keep our, uh, and wash our mouths out with soap before we get on television. Uh, a lesson I have learned recently. More rising right after this. Podcast giant Joe Rogan hosted Tesla CEO and owner of Twitter, Elon Musk, on the Joe Rogan Experience. Now, in the latest episode published yesterday, both of them alluded to leftists being the downfall of society. Watch. I don't want to be melodramatic, but it's almost like a death cult. It's a death cult. No, no, it, it, that is exactly right. Um, it, it, uh, it, it's essentially the uh, extinctionists. Like, it's in the limit. It is that they're propagating... Uh, the extinction of humanity and civilization, um, and, and there's some people who are, are like most most of the time it, it's it's implicit. They don't explicit, but sometimes it's explicit. Like there was a guy on the front page of the New York Times uh, who it literally has the thing called the extinctionist movement, um, and he was quoted on the front page of the New York Times as saying, uh, "There are eight billion people on the world, but it would be better if there were none." Before diving into the doom and gloom faction of uh, citizens bringing down civilization, Rogan pressed Musk on the reason behind the purchase of Twitter, now called X. Let's take a look. This is going to sound uh, somewhat melodramatic, but I was worried about that, that it was having a corrosive effect on civilization, uh, that it was uh, just having a bad, a bad impact. Um, and um, I think part of it is that it's where, it's where it was located, which is uh, you know downtown San Francisco. Um, and while I, I think San Francisco is a beautiful city, and and we should really fight hard to, um, kind of right the ship of San Francisco. If you've walked around downtown San Francisco, right near the X FK Twitter headquarters, it's a zombie apocalypse. So what do you make of this? Is, are, are the leftists part of a death cult? Robbie, help me understand the argument here. I fear for my life every time I sit in this close proximity to uh, my favorite leftist. Um, look, I, I think, um, so he's, he, there he talked about the human extinction movement, the voluntary human extinction movement, which I think is a very ridiculous concept. fringe concept. movement that yeah, leftists, like Bernie-style leftists, Object to yeah. enormously because no it's anti-humanistic. Really on no one cares about These that. These people are total <laughs> kooks, and in general, the kind of population bomb, population control people are totally discredited and kooky. I don't know that they actually have that much influence 
on leftist discourse or really discourse at all. A lot of conservatives like them because if you— No, they don't. Yeah, they're not like actual conservatives, but the, it's a fringe group that has very little people who like it, period. But it appeals to some, frankly, like— people in the energy sector and the like, because you don't have to do a Green New Deal, you don't have to bring down human consumption as much if you actually just bring down the population. And so there are some, like, pinker types who talk about how the world has gotten better through um, technology. We should be talking about how many people have been built out, brought out of poverty by technology. Yeah, that's we what Elon was talking about. That's yeah. the good, that's mm, the that's the No, but a lot, of, a lot of them are like, well, we should focus on the... Um, industrialization of the global south, put limits on that as opposed to limits on us. We've already gone through our industrial revolution. We're already on the other side. And the real problem isn't us. It's um, some factory in China. There's a lot of focus on China and the global south when talking about pollution, because that means that Chevron and Exxon and whomever don't have to actually cap their output. So there, there's Well, there's right. Weird but that's all liberal. I mean, the conservatives it. are saying— um, you know, yes, point to all the polluting. They're pointing to all the polluting going on elsewhere as a reason to not be to overly fret about controlling our own levels of pollution. Not saying yeah, we should control our human beings. What's one more million but, metric tons? <laughs> um, in any case, the uh, that's, that's not a death cult. Um, wanting to cause climate change that results in mass uh, drought and starvation. We take reasonable. Is not a death Efforts cult. to curb the worst. Potential ramifications of climate change. I don't think Elon Musk disagrees with that. You know that. what that means, though, right? That. What? You know what avoiding the worst potential outcomes of climate change yeah, means, nuclear right? Nuclear energy. Sure, I, I don't have a problem with nuclear energy, but more specifically, it means something on the scale of a Green New Deal. That's what the whole point of a Green New Deal is to prevent us getting to the, what, two degrees Celsius change. That would be the tipping point for what scientists expect would be the worst of these changes. Climate change activists aren't sitting here saying, I just don't want it to be hotter next August. The goals that they've been articulating for the world are goals that are very much geared toward. Well, we've, I, we've already crossed. I don't by know specifically what is in the latest version of the Green New Deal, but what we don't want to do is ham, uh, hamstring, hold back technological innovation because by letting innovation flourish, we get cleaner and better sources of Which energy. Innovation? We should move from. We want to move from. What does what Schellenberger say? I forget the exact order. From what, what fossil fuels to gas to renewables, to nuclear. What technical innovation would be held back by—what specific technical innovation are you worried about being held back by the Green New Deal? Because I, I wouldn't say well, I don't know opening up in more it, drilling in the Arctic is a technical innovation. That's just more exploitation of a resource that people have been pulling out of the ground for hundreds right. of years. We don't years. want to deprive people of resources in order to stop climate change, because depriving people of resources is the anti-human thing. What is depriving people of resources? Well, like just what? like— just making it harder for people to have gas in the cars or raising or, or doing less drilling or less uh, providing of that resource to make it more expensive is exactly the kind of anti-human thing that Elon's talking there. Okay. Now, if well, we find better, now if we can invent and find better ways. Here's what I think is anti-human. I mean, Elon, Elon is inventing um, self-driving cars and trying to, you know, make that a thing. I think he should do it without the subsidies, personally. But, I, um, I think it's I think it's anti-human for almost seven million people to die annually from air pollution alone. I think it's anti-human for Chevron to have gotten away with poisoning entire communities in the Amazon, uh, who are built born with multiple generations of birth defects because of how much oil uh, Chevron left um, in 
one of the most important regions for biodiversity on the planet. I think it's anti-human to have climate change that causes droughts and mass immigration. Immigration, the likes of these folks, don't really care much for, but it's going to happen because you can't expect people who don't have water and don't have food. I mean, again, I want to I want to talk about solutions to curb but, those problems. Wait a minute, but what are the solutions for you? To well, you curb? tell me, I, and I'll evaluate Green, it. Green New Deal, for instance. Well, what is that? That's Stopping just climate three... change. Like, that, that is the entire point, a real investment in moving away from dirty energy. That's the whole point of all of yeah, this. We agree, we agree and, and to do that. If you want Nuclear. to talk about being people forward and humanistic, I want to live in a world where instead of mothers coming home from the hospital with a, with a five-digit uh, hospital bill, where we incentivize people to have families by sending them home with what they do in the Scandinavian and European countries, baby boxes, a box that has uh, sheets and a cushion in it where the baby can literally this, sleep this in the box. This has nothing to do with the environment, though. I, I, I'm Let's sorry. we on. But, Robbie, this is a broader segment about what it means. There was a pretty significant charge leveraged against the left of being anti-human, and I'm explaining why I feel kind of frustrated by that framing. It's the left that's saying they want to support mothers, they want to support families, they want to get people to have a living wage, they can stay home and actually raise their children without leaving them to delinquency and causing some of the problems that he's describing in, in San Francisco. I want us to have an understanding of why it is that when a city like San Francisco gets such a concentration of extremely wealthy people and drives up housing costs, that of course is going to have an anti-humanistic effect on the majority of the uh, bulk of a population who can no longer afford to Well, the housing costs are, be, are being driven streets. up because it's impossible to build new housing. I, that's not, I'm not specifically no, blaming not, the left for that. it's not just that, Robbie. It is substantially it, that. We've no. made it impossible to build anything in this country because Robbie, of the... Robbie, every, every answer doesn't have one solution, every little tiny square libertarian peg hole It's where literally it's illegal to build housing. Look, I'm, I'm happy to build all the houses in the world, but the difference between San Francisco 50 years ago and San Francisco today with the same restrictive housing and building policies is that there well, are now over time. If well, you have 50 years of it being illegal to build housing, then the problem's know, worse. I, I really want to have this conversation, but I get accused a lot on this show of interrupting you. I'm just trying to finish a couple of okay, points here. The difference here, you cannot ignore that the, the, the way that wealth aggregates is not a zero-sum game. And when you look at cities like San Francisco, where the income disparity has grown disproportionately, of course that is driving the homeless crisis and the addiction crisis you're seeing there on the ground. And I don't think it's, anti, it's, it's the left that are advocating for a minimum wage, advocating for housing for all, advocating for Medicare for all, advocating for medical debt cancellation. The $80 billion that they want to cut from the IRS well, it's, so to fund uh, these wars overseas, that's 80, it would only take $80 billion to cancel all medical debt in the country. So it does strike me as somewhat rich for people who are leaning more to the right. And I wouldn't even necessarily characterize Rogan as that because he was the one who supported Bernie Sanders in 2020. But people who are increasingly aligning themselves with folks like Ron DeSantis and the like, who advocate for nothing to support well, the life of American citizens you, let me ask you one, as being a death cult. So why do you think, then, that Joe Rogan, um, who, as you pointed out, was a Bernie Sanders supporter and was maybe someone broadly sympathetic to aspects of the left and probably still is, uh, nodding in agreement that it's a death cult? I don't know. It's interesting. I would like to have to see him have some leftists on, maybe even have Bernie Sanders back on and have a conversation about this heel turn, because he was someone who was very passionate about, specifically, if I recall correctly, the issue of Medicare for all. And I hate to break it to you, but 68,000 people haven't stopped dying every year in the richest country in the world because they can't afford health care. We don't have dental care as part of our overall health care. And with the connection between 
uh, oral health and heart disease, it's unconscionable with heart disease being one of the leading causes of death. You really do have infant mortality rates in part of these, this country, parts of this country that rival infant mortality rates in the global south. It, and we know that we could do things differently, and instead we're spending trillions of dollars over the course of the last couple of decades on wars that have had the result of well, doing yeah, what I don't exactly. spend any money on that. I, I think when the, the Elon, the futurist camp, is talking, but there was a, you know, over the course of the last century, a massive, massive improvement in living conditions and life expectancy and health and a wholesale reduction of poverty in in the global south, in South America, in India, in China, um, because of uh, what better farming practices um, and technological innovation, and we don't want to kneecap those things further because that is that is the most likely to further uh, alleviate and improve the state of the earth. It's most likely to be those things. That. I just don't understand. All what right. That well, then we're is. arguing with a straw man. That's we're not trying to. We just don't want to prevent any of that. The question is: Are any of these people going to advocate not just to cut funding to going elsewhere? to actually want to fund a country that supports life and happiness for American citizens. Do we want to acknowledge that productivity is up, Americans are working harder and longer than they have done historically, while getting worse off? You pointed to rising health expectancies across the world. It's the opposite trajectory for white men living in America today. And our generation was the first in American history to do worse financially than our parents' generation. That's our reality. And part of when you're looking at folks in the polls looking at Biden, uh, scoffing at the idea that the economy is good is because they're living that reality. So I just would like to see some of these folks saying that the left is a death cult. The left is the only one who's coming up with any kind of ideas and prescriptions, not for just how to cut funding, but how to help Americans who are getting a smaller and smaller piece of the pie despite working harder and harder to actually come up with affirmative solutions instead of just casting aspersions on the other team all day. I would take the position that mindlessly growing federal bureaucracy or local bureaucracies are a death cult. I wouldn't say the left is a death cult. All right, Raj. Just because I like you too much, Brianna. And I think that a libertarian doggy dog world is going to advantage people who are billionaires like Elon Musk and multimillionaires um, like Joe Rogan. They can build their fortresses around themselves and protect themselves. But what's going to happen to everybody else? I mean, their living standards will drastically and dramatically improve when we generally let leave human beings alone to organize their societies as they see fit and innovate better ways to. Um, grow food and build houses and, and use energy, and that is the story of the last century, and it's been the best time ever to be a human being in existence. Let us know in the comments if you're feeling that way in your lives, if you feel like it's the best time ever to be a human being in existence. Well, tomorrow on Rising, we'll be right back here at the desk, same time, same place. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.